0: Well, good morning, everyone. I am glad to be able to be with you this morning in this fashion. I trust you just had a a great VBS update and there's a lot of exciting things there for us to be celebrating. And uh, you're probably wondering why I'm on video. And no, there is not another COVID shutdown, so do not be alarmed by that. I just uh, am selfish and greedy I have a couple of family events that I did not want to miss out on on Saturday and Sunday. And I also wanted to preach this message on sanctification. So rather than give up any of those things, I hoped that I could do them all. And uh, so. I'm glad that you are bearing with us in terms of a video if you are here at Lakeside in person and uh, trust that this message will be profitable to you and also welcome those that are joining us online and you won't see a big difference other than I'm going to do the slides a little bit differently and not have as many. We're continuing in our series on doctrine and as we have been unpacking various doctrines like atonement and regeneration, and as we will be talking about glorification in the future, we're really talking about doctrines that fall under a larger umbrella or a larger category called soteriology. And soteriology is the manner of our salvation. It is the doctrines or the truths of our salvation. And our topic today certainly falls into the category of soteriology. The question of how we are saved. And as I just mentioned a few of them, we can see that there are multiple parts to our salvation and it's important to our understanding as believers It's important to our salvation, but not as important to our understanding because, of course, we can be saved without fully understanding all of these things. I want to make that clear. Uh, We don't need a perfect understanding of doctrine in order to be saved. But it is certainly helpful and very important to ourselves as disciples and as Christians that we can look into the scripture and get the parts of our salvation clear and know where they fit in the right place that we get God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the right place in our lives, and that we get ourselves in the right place in our salvation. All the parts of soteriology, and of all the parts of soteriology, sanctification, for the most part, often gives us the most trouble as Christians. And I think the Holy Spirit knew that it would give us the most trouble, and so a lot of the New Testament letters that Paul and Peter and James and others write large chunks of them are devoted to our sanctification. They talk a fair bit about our new identity found in our regeneration and in our justification by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. They talk a little bit about our future glorification in heaven and our perfection, but they talk a lot about our present day sanctification. And when I say our present-day sanctification, I'm talking about how the gospel, how our salvation is being worked out in our lives right now. So that's why Paul and Peter and James and all the rest of them talk about what we should be encouraged to see as fruit in the life of church members around us and in our own lives, how disciples are growing more and more Christ-like and why we are encouraged to stop being angry and selfish and full of malice and envy and slanderous or greedy and instead live in peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. All those biblical commands that we see uh, throughout the New Testament uh, are given to us to help us understand what the product of our sanctification should be. Basically that we are acting like we're part of the family that we've been adopted into. But here's the trouble with sanctification and this is why sanctification gives us trouble. Living in that middle part of the gospel is a messy middle for most of us. We are new creations, we're filled with the spirit, we're born again, we're free from sin, we're more than conquerors in Christ, we rejoice in all those great truths of our justification. And yet, if all of us are honest, our lack of progress in sanctification is often the greatest cause of doubt in the Christian faith and in our own sanctification. And we need to be honest about that fact as Christians. Every Christian wrestles with their lack of sanctification and the question that it raises If I'm a new creation in Jesus, why is it so hard to forgive like Jesus? If I am no longer a slave to sin, why do I still want to sin and still do sin? I do love God the way—I do love God's way of love, and I want to love like he does. So why is my heart so hard towards some people? Why is my heart so hard towards people that I should even naturally love? And why do I drift so easily and thoughtlessly into satisfying my own needs ahead of others' needs? Or as perhaps the most famous sinner, the Apostle Paul, put it in Romans seven nineteen, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That is a fundamental problem that we wrestle with as Christians. It is a fundamental tension in the Christian life that we are new creations, born again, regenerate, filled with the Spirit, more than conquerors, set free from the bondage of sin. And yet we know that we do still sin, that our sanctification is incomplete, that our sanctification seems to stop and start in fits and gives us trouble to cause us to wonder Does God even love us? Can he love us? Are we saved? Is our salvation assured? So that messy middle of the gospel is where we live out our Christian life. And so I want today, very briefly, because I know with everything else that's going on in this service, that there's not a lot of time, not nearly enough time to cover the topic of sanctification. But I want to just touch on a few ideas that I think are important in how we clarify how we think as disciples about what sanctification is in Scripture and what sanctification is in our life and where we fit and where God fits in our sanctification and where sanctification fits in our salvation. If Paul wrestled with it, we can expect to wrestle with it as well. And so we want to, in this short amount of time, just get, simply get sanctification in its proper place in our understanding of our salvation. Because most of our problems with sanctification arise out of our misunderstanding of soteriology, our misunderstanding of sanctification and how all the pieces of salvation fit together. So that's what we're going to look at today and hopefully be encouraged from a few key verses the Bible gives us about our sanctification uh, as we proceed. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to look to it today, that we get to... uh, understand your hope for us your encouragement to us your blessing to us in sanctification that we might not be discouraged but we would be encouraged that it would not cause us to doubt but that it would give us assurance father god that we would understand sanctification and where it fits and how we work with you in it we pray these things in christ's name amen so first i'm going to do a diagram then a definition and then we're going to have some biblical discourse Uh, My wife, Wendy, gave me this sweet diagram earlier in the week, and I don't know if she invented it or if she found it somewhere else, but I'm giving her full credit for the simplicity of it and how it helps illuminate this teaching. So here's the diagram. If we were to simplify the parts of our salvation, or we can even say simplify the pieces of the gospel that apply to our salvation, it might look like this. Now, this is not a diagram that the Bible explicitly describes for us. Uh, Similar to the way that the Bible does not explicitly name the Trinity, but this is a diagram that we can say is true about what the scripture does tell us about our salvation. We experience one salvation. We are saved. There is one salvation. And that begins with our justification before God. Uh, That is, God accepting us as righteous because of the finished work of Jesus. Romans 4.24 says that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And we put our hope and our trust completely in Jesus Christ for our righteousness and our acceptance or our justification before God, our legal standing. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our works, Ephesians 2, 8-9 says. So that's our justification. We know also that our salvation will lead to our glorification. 1 Peter three eighteen says that Jesus died in order to bring us to God. We are saved to be finally made perfect and restore full relationship with God again in heaven. And so that is our glorification. When we think of being saved, we look back to the cross and Jesus saving us by his finished work. And we think of our salvation in terms of being restored and renewed in heaven to be with God for eternity. But our salvation also includes our sanctification. We're justified in the past, we will be glorified in the future, but we are presently being transformed, made new creations, being washed by the word, renewing our mind, growing from faith to faith, all of these phrases and ideas that the New Testament gives us to say that we are growing progressively towards something new, becoming renewed image bearers of God. And so that diagram helps us to see that we do not have a complete salvation without justification. Our salvation would not be complete without glorification, but it's also true that our salvation is not complete without sanctification. The Bible teaches us that just as you have been justified, you are being sanctified and you will be glorified. Justification is our acceptance by God. Sanctification is our progress with God. Glorification glorification is our perfection and reuniting with God. And so we have to get are thinking about sanctification and our salvation in the right place, and that's the purpose of this diagram. That's the purpose of this first point. That as Christians, it's important that we don't confuse sanctification with justification, or sanctification with glorification, or we could say perfection, because there are like we've often talked about uh, two ditches that we could fall into if we get sanctification wrong. On the one hand, if we think of sanctification as our justification, if we think that by our good works, by our becoming more Christ-like, we are going to be accepted by God, then we'll fall into the ditch of legalism and trying to earn our righteousness by our own works, which Ephesians 2 said we cannot do. So we cannot confuse or conflate sanctification with justification. It's not by our works that we are accepted by God. We are already justified, that is a finished work done entirely through the regeneration of ourself and through the work of Jesus Christ, all on the part of God, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks on regeneration and atonement. And so we don't want to fall into that ditch of thinking sanctification is our justification or else we become legalists and we become self-righteous. If we think of our sanctification, on the other hand, as our glorification, then we fall into the ditch of perfectionism. And I won't have time today to talk about perfectionism um, other than to say that our sanctification will not be complete on this side of heaven. And so if we think that our sanctification is supposed to achieve some sort of perfection in our life, then we will fall into that ditch of despair and doubt because our sanctification will not be complete. Not that we cannot, in every circumstance, choose to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Only the simple normative reality of the gospel and discipleship life is that we won't. We will not be perfect in this life. One has lived this life perfectly, and that's Jesus Christ, and we will not do that. But we will achieve perfection in our glorification. But... If we rightly understand sanctification as our participation with God in our new creation then we will be on the right path to understanding how the Bible talks about sanctification and understanding the role that we play in it. But as the diagram suggests, there is no such thing as an unsuccessful regeneration, there's no such creature as a justified Christian that experiences no sanctification or no growth. Growth may be slow and small for some period, maybe for long periods, but you will, if you have been justified, experience growth. And you will, if you have been justified and you see evidence of your growth, will achieve glorification in heaven. But those periods of slow growing and of almost no growing They do and they should purposefully purposefully cause us to lean into the truth of sanctification and yearn for the fruit that God intends for our lives. And so if your meager, shall I say, sanctification periods in your life cause you to be concerned for your um, spiritual growth, that's actually a good thing. We are given consciences to examine ourselves. We are told that we should expect to bear fruit unto righteousness. We are told that we should grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We are told that we should walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we're told those things and given evidence of those things in our life for our assurance and to spur us on in this life to continue to grow. That's the diagram. Now a definition, just very simply. What is sanctification, and what are we going to be talking about in the verses that follow? Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, summarizes sanctification, perhaps the most simply, uh, of all the ones that I could choose from. Wayne says, Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. That's the reality of the Christian life, of discipleship of following Jesus while we remain on earth, to grow, to be increasingly set free from sin, and to become increasingly like Christ, to be renewing our lost image-bearing, as we talked about in the first couple of messages on God and man. Now some biblical discourse to just survey where these truths about sanctification come from and how we participate in it. First of all, we understand that our sanctification begins at regeneration or at justification. That point in time when God in his agency causes us to be born again and we get new spiritual life and that new spiritual life allows us to see the beauty of Jesus and to put our hope and our trust in him and in the promises of God who we are now able to see and who we can respond to. And so we are justified. We are made right with God. We have legal standing and we are counted righteous. And I'm not going to go into that because we talked about all of that in the last several messages. But we understand that our sanctification begins with regeneration. That is what allows us to begin to grow. And then it grows throughout our life. Romans 16b says, For just as you once yielded yourself to increasing sin, basically now yield yourself to increasing sanctification. That's my paraphrase. Paul says it a little more uh, complex than that. But if you look at Romans 16, uh, you'll see that he's saying, You used to sin, and you used to continually increase in your sin, and now, in the same way as you used to increase in your sin, I want you to yield to righteousness and increase in your sanctification. And so there is this idea that we are to move forward in our growth in becoming like Christ. We see that it is also uniquely our work, so this is something that every disciple does together, but is also unique to us. One of the key verses, probably one of the top two verses, and we're going to look at the other one in First Thessalonians 5 in a minute. But one of the top two verses that speak directly to sanctification is Philippians two twelve to 13 and so I'm just going to read Philippians 2, 12 to 13 and unpack a few of the ideas that we can learn about sanctification. Now that we have it in the right place between justification and glorification, Paul is talking about our sanctification. Not how we're saved, not how we're made perfect, but how we grow in our Christ-likeness. Philippians 2:12 to 13 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, there's a lot of really cool things in this verse that I want to touch on. The first thing is Paul basically saying, therefore, and that's the diagram that's putting it in the right context. Philippians two very quickly is talking about, it opens up with that great hymn in verses one to 11 about having the mind of Christ and like Christ, humbling ourselves and making ourselves more like Christ. And so the whole theme of Philippians two is again, not our justification or glorification, but our becoming Christ-like, our sanctification. And so because that is the theme, Paul says, therefore, so the context here is our sanctification. So he says, therefore, work out your own salvation. Well, there's our participation in it. In our last message on regeneration, we found great assurance in the fact that our justification or our acceptance by God was not dependent on our human ability or our human agency, because if it was dependent on us, we would fail. But after that sermon, I inevitably got the questions you could imagine that I would get. Where is human agency? Where is our free will? Where is our part in our salvation? Well, here it is in our sanctification. And I am glad that the part that God gave us in our salvation is not the part that our acceptance is dependent on. But that's not to say we don't participate in it. It's not to say that it's not important. We do participate actively with God in our sanctification. There's work for us to do, Paul says. Work out your own salvation. Strive, he says in other verses. Uh, Yearn after, he says in other parts of his letters. And so there's work for us to do in this part of the gospel, this part of our salvation. So what does it mean to work out your own salvation then? Does it mean do a bunch of work so that you're saved? No, we already said the context here is not justification. The New Testament's already made clear that we're not saved by works. Rather, in this text, Paul is saying we have a salvation of our own that we now have, and we need to work it out in our lives. In other words, the salvation is your own, the salvation is present, now work it out. And he says it's your own salvation. Um, Sometimes when I think about working out our own salvation, it can be helpful to use a, a metaphor or an analogy like a math equation. So you can imagine a math equation on the board and there's, you know, a whole bunch of variables and operands and, you know, the equal sign and a question mark and, you know, the answer is there. It's in the form of this equation. It's already determined, and the equation's been given to you to work out. And so I sort of think of my salvation that way, that I am working out this equation that God has already given me, and it's already established, and the answer is known. I'm simply discovering it as I work it out, and that can be a helpful understanding of what Paul means by working out our own salvation. But the other part of our own salvation that I just want to touch on briefly as well is that Paul is talking about this corporately in this letter to many Christians. He's encouraging each of them to be personally involved in their own sanctification. In other words, other people can't work out your salvation for you. Your mom and dad can't sanctify you. Um, You know, I can't sanctify you. The elders are not sanctifying you. This part of your salvation is really up to you. You participate with others in it and we are certainly encouraged to do this communally and the common means of grace that that God gives us are the church and fellowship and the word and all of these things, all of these blessings of being a family of God are the common means of grace that God gives us to work out our salvation, but ultimately we must work out our salvation. We must work out our sanctification on our own. Now you might think, well what does that mean? What does that look like in my life personally? Well, that's exactly what I want to touch on by reflecting back on Luke uh, chapter 3. In, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is basically introducing the new covenant, the new kingdom reality that is coming with Jesus. And he's talking about the people to repent. And he says in Luke 3.8, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now that phrase right there sounds a lot like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, just a couple of, or sorry, in Philippians chapter 1, just a few verses earlier than our text. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. They sound very similar, don't they? Because they're really talking about the same thing. So when Paul then says, work out your own salvation, you ask, what does that mean? And the crowds asked John the Baptist, what does he mean by bear fruits in keeping with repentance? It says in verse 10 of Luke chapter 3, And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is an interesting reply of John. And I think this is the reply that Paul or John or Peter or this John or the other John would would give in answer to what does it mean to work out our own salvation or to work on our own sanctification. You see, different kinds of people are coming to John and saying, What are we supposed to do? What are the fruits of repentance? (laughs) What is it that we are to do? And John's essential answer is you all have to do that in your own way. It won't always be the same for every disciple. If you're someone who has a lot of stuff and other people don't have stuff, then hold on to your stuff loosely. You know, let other people have it. Be generous. Don't hoard and shelter food. Give away the extra that you have. How many clothes do you really need? How many cars? How many houses do you need? Are you being generous? John would ask. And then other people came. They were tax collectors or money handlers. And so he says, don't cheat. Don't overcharge. Don't skim. Pay fair wages. If you're a person who has money flow through their hands or across your desk in business, then that money should flow fairly. Or what if you're a soldier? What if you hold a position of authority and power over others? John says, don't be a bully. Don't be a thug. Wield your authority properly and be content with what you receive in recompense. Don't use your power to manipulate and to get more for yourself. So those are just examples. But John is basically saying, I think what Paul would answer, you all need to work out your own salvation and what that will look like will be different depending on who you are. And so this is the other work that we have to do with God in our sanctification is to really apply the gospel to our own lives. What is it that God is trying to change in us? What role do we fit in the equation of our salvation? And how would God have us work out our salvation properly? Sanctification doesn't look the same for everybody. Some may need to do things that others don't need to do. Some don't need to do things that others do need to do. We need to work those things out for ourselves. But Paul says as we do this, going back to Philippians 2, we do it with fear and trembling. Our approach as disciples to working out our salvation, Paul reminds us, is with reverent awe and humility. We are to be humble and God-fearing in the living out of this sanctified life. And perhaps it's easier to see it in contrast. As we work out our salvation, we don't do it brashly. We don't do it arrogantly or self-righteously or independently. A disciple is not one, Paul is saying here, who walks around saying, aren't I amazing as I work out my sanctification. I am a righteous dude. Because it's God who is the one who is working in us and in our gospel-sanctified life. And so we live it out reverently and humbly before God. And this is made especially obvious by Paul's subsequent reason. He tells us exactly why. He says that it is because God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that's the other piece. Even as Paul says that we work out our own salvation, we understand that we participate with God in it. In fact, it is God who is actually working in us to work out our will and work for his good pleasure. To emphasize this point, I want to touch on the other top two uh, verses on sanctification, which is Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24 really drives this point home. Paul writes there, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. So now Paul here, again, just as at the end of Philippians two twelve to 13, talking about God who works in you both to will and to work, now says here in Thessalonians that the God of peace himself sanctifies you completely or wholly in all parts of your life. That your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of your Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so we understand that, Unlike our justification that is done by God, in sanctification we participate with God. God is walking with us in our sanctification, and he is participating in our sanctification as we participate with him. And Philippians 2.13 says that God works on both our will and our work for his good pleasure. The other point that Thessalonians brings out is that the God of peace himself sanctifies us. One of the things I just want to draw out of there very quickly, and I need to start to wrap this up because I know it's a busy service, but is that the God who is sanctifying us is the God of peace. The Greek word there is irene, which is the word that is used for the Hebrew word shalom. The idea of Irene or Shalom is of complete harmony in relationship with God and total well-being. Now, why, do I, why does Paul emphasize that? Why do I want to emphasize that? Because we have to understand that in our sanctification, the God who is at work in us is good. The God who is at work in us and his commands for us to be sanctified and to be holy and to put away the old and put on the new and to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit... All of his commands to us in sanctification are blessing. And we can get this part of our sanctification wrong too. We can think that sanctification is a burden. And as disciples, as believers, if, if we think that sanctification is somehow a burden that we have to bear in order to receive the treat or the reward of glorification, then we are not understanding sanctification correctly. We have to understand that God's commands to us to be sanctified are good and blessed commands satan's oldest lie is the assertion to eve and to adam that if they want to enjoy blessing and satisfaction in their life and fulfillment then they can only find that satisfaction and enjoyment and fulfillment by disobeying god satan argued with adam and eve that freedom and blessedness would only be found in rebellion but adam and eve soon discovered the bitter truth of that 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 in fact, by rebelling against God, they were giving up on blessing. Sin does not bring freedom and blessing, but it brings bondage and curse. And so we have to understand this about our sanctification as disciples too. Sanctification is not at all a burden that we bear, something that we give up or something that we do grudgingly. It is in fact blessing. God's commands are blessing. You think about the commands that he gave Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given the commands to rule over everything on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. That was their big command. Have authority over everything and make lots of babies. Those commands are blessings. Those are not things you do in order to be blessed. Those commands are blessings in themselves. We look at the New Covenant. We look at the New Testament. What are God's commands in sanctification? You should... Stop fighting with other, each other. Stop lying to each other. Stop being malicious. Stop being envious. Stop hating. I've got another command for you. You should be patient and kind and generous and loving and support one another and bear one another's burdens and care for each other and consider others more higher than yourselves. Now, what disciple is going to say, Oh, those horrible commands that God gave me just so that I can get to heaven. No, the commands are the blessing. We don't need blessing for obeying the command because the command is blessing it is blessed to be sanctified it is blessed to follow the way of god in love and kindness and encouragement so i just emphasize here that the god who is working in us and the god who is giving us this co-work with him of sanctification is a good god the god of peace and shalom and his commands are blessing god wants this for us because it is good And then finally, we see here in the end of Philippians 2.13, he says that he does this will and this work for us for his good pleasure. That is incredible. It is God's good pleasure. It is God's joyful work to be doing this in us. And that should fill us with plenty of assurance that God cares more about our sanctification than we do. He is so invested in our sanctification that he will finish it, just as both Thessalonians says and Philippians ultimately says. The end of Thessalonians says, He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Here's the other hope and assurance that we have in our sanctification, is that it will happen. Philippians says in 1.6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will never give up on us and on our growth, even when we feel like giving up on ourselves and giving up on our sanctification. And so we should never doubt that our sanctification will happen. If you have been justified, you will be sanctified. And as you will be sanctified, you have continued assurance and hope that you will be glorified. And so we work with God in our sanctification. He is faithful to make sure that it will take place. It is His good pleasure to do it. And the commands of His sanctification are joy to us. Now, there is a lot more to sanctification. And I apologize that this is the time that we had and this is all that we could cover. Um, But sanctification really is living out the Christian life. And it is a joy and it is an assurance and it is powered by God, working in us, but we join him in it. As we work out our own salvation individually, as we work out what it is that God has for the equation of our life and what he is doing to transform us and transform us uniquely more and more into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this message. I pray And I celebrate, along with the rest of my brothers and sisters, all of the great things that came out of VBS, all of the great things that are still ahead of us in the summer with the sports camp. Father, I just pray blessing on us as we go, that we would not allow sanctification to fall into the wrong place of our salvation. And it would not cause us doubt. It would not cause us discouragement. We would be encouraged that we see fruit and growth And that where we don't see fruit and growth, where we we do wonder, you know, what is God doing and where is our sanctification coming, that that would cause us to lean back again into God and his will for us. Because he is faithful to complete it and it is his joy to sanctify us. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.